Okay, we have come to Luke chapter 24, the final chapter of Luke. I know. Next week, we start Exodus. Ooh. Yeah. I got oohs. I got kind of boos. I got... The first half is great. (laughs) But Matt will be back next week to introduce the book, and I'm looking forward to that. But tonight, I am so excited about this chapter of Luke. You could sum up chapter 24 in two words. Remember Jesus. That is the takeaway that Dr. Luke has for us in this book. As he closes out his first book, his first letter to Theophilus, his letter to us really, his takeaway for us is this. Remember Jesus. And Luke is going to give us three small stories in this passage, three encounters, and each of them shows a problem, a misguided thinking by the disciples. And then the solution to each of this is remember Jesus. Because between chapter 23 and chapter 24, everything has changed. For three years or 20 or so chapters, Jesus' disciples, his followers, they've been traveling with him. They've been dining with him. They've been uh, learning from him. They've been sitting at his feet. They've been feasting with him. They've been laughing with him. But last week, last chapter, yesterday, as it were in this story, they, they saw him crucified. And now we're going to see a risen Jesus in chapter 24. But their relationship has changed a little bit. It's not quite the same. And going forward, their relationship with Jesus is going to be different. No longer can they just walk up to Jesus when they have a question. No longer can they just ask Jesus when they have a problem. They are now going to be dealing with a risen Savior. And it's different. And mistakes are made. And what's so applicable and what's so beautiful about this chapter to me is this is a situation I find myself in every day. We're relating to a risen Savior, yes? And just like the disciples in this chapter, Jesus is risen, but we haven't seen him yet. And I don't know about you, but this this life, this pursuit that we're on of developing a relationship with an unseen, risen Savior, it's got a learning curve. (laughs) And I don't always get it right. And so as I look at these examples and these disciples, as Dr. Luke really gives us three case studies, I'm reminded over and over and over again, when I find myself lost, when I find myself making mistakes, remember Jesus. So let's dive into it. Luke chapter 24, here's what it says. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day. And they remembered 
his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. Our first encounter Our first look at this is we have the women going back to Jesus's tomb to minister to him, to really finish the burial ceremony. It was rushed. It was hasty. They had to get him into the tomb before nightfall on the Sabbath. And so now the women have returned to finish the job and the tomb is empty. Amen. Amen. But because the tomb is empty, they're looking around and they're trying to figure out what's going on. They're looking for Jesus and an angel appears and what does he say to them? You can't find the living among the dead. Remember what Jesus said. Okay, this one's a little bit tough, so so follow me on this one, okay? I don't want to lose anyone here. But I find myself identifying with these women And here's what I mean by that. Sometimes I'm looking for Jesus. You guys looking for Jesus? I'm looking for Jesus. In fact, I want to spend my life seeking Jesus. And I want to spend my life seeking Jesus things. What are Jesus things? Well, Jesus told us what Jesus things are. In John 15, 5, he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him bears much Fruit. Jesus' things are fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And so I believe most of us are seeking those things. We want those things. We want love. We want peace. We want patience. We want that fruit. I want that fruit in my life. But sometimes I look at the fruit that I'm actually producing, and it's not these fruits. I'm not producing peace. I'm producing anxiety. I'm not producing patience. I'm producing aggravation. I'm not producing self-control. I'm producing self-indulgence and that fifth cookie that looks so good. You can only find Jesus things where Jesus is. Does that make sense? Like, as I read this and I look at what is happening here, I think, how often am I looking for Jesus' things in non-Jesus places? I'm trying to find love in the wrong places. I'm trying to find peace in the wrong places. I'm trying to find kindness in the wrong places. And when I look at the fruit that I'm producing and it's not these, I have to step back and say, I'm not looking for Jesus where Jesus is. And so I come back to this passage here and I think that the advice that the angel gives is so beautiful. When I'm not finding Jesus the way I want to, I need to remember what Jesus said. I've got to go back to Jesus' words. When the fruit I'm producing is not Jesus' fruit, I go back to Jesus' words. We have four books of them. They're super important, and they're absolutely brilliant. I think that's what I've loved about studying through Luke so much. Jesus' words... Man, Jesus' words are where we find Jesus' truth. It's where we find Jesus' fruit. It's where we find life. 
as I was thinking through this this last week, I just was thinking, okay, Jesus' words. What's the one passage of the Bible where Jesus has the most words? It's the Sermon on the Mount, right? So I read back through it. When's the last time you just sat down and read through the Sermon on the Mount? Okay, that's your assignment tomorrow or the next day. The next time you sit down with your Bible, just turn to Matthew, read chapters five, six, and seven. It's all in there. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. It's all there. It's all in Jesus's words. I'll give you a couple examples. Matthew 5, 9 says this about peace. Blessed, which as we know now means what? Happy. Happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. But then Jesus goes on in verse 23 and 24, and he tells us this. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Talk about pursuing peace. That's how we're supposed to pursue peace. If you really like thought about or meditated on what that verse means. What this verse means to me is this. God is saying, Jesus is saying in this verse, more important to me than your offerings, which to us, we're a little disconnected from offerings. But really, when, we, when I think of offerings and things that I offer to the Lord now, it's time and money, right? That's what we bring. I bring time and volunteer and pouring into and pursuing the things of Jesus. And I bring money because I think we're supposed to support our church and what's going on. But Jesus says, more important to me than either of those things is that you would be at peace with your brother. That if you are volunteering in the kids' wing next week and you suddenly have someone come to mind that you are at enmity with, you need to call Justin and cancel. (laughs) Love you, Justin. (laughs) And go make peace with them. It's more important. That's what that says. Wow. Man, when I'm not finding peace, if I come back to a principle like that, I'll bet I find it. What does Jesus say about goodness? Matthew 5, 6. Blessed, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You want goodness, righteousness, really? Pursue it the way you pursue food and drink. Daily hourly, repeatedly. What do you crave first thing when you wake up in the morning? Right? How many of you love that midnight snack? Which is really like 9.30, which is the new midnight. (laughs) Have I ever craved righteousness like that? Man, if I haven't eaten for a few days or an hour, I am just hungry. I will pursue anything. We used to have this saying when when I was a kid, my dad and I would go backpacking two, three, four days and you'd eat like granola bars and fish, um, tiny little backpacking fish. You would never keep anywhere else, but you're hungry. And we would get back and we would go to like McDonald's and it was the best hamburger you'd ever had. Why? Because hunger is the best seasoning. We're supposed to pursue righteousness like that. Wow. Jesus is so brilliant. What about self-control? 
Matthew 5, 29 through 30, Jesus says this, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. That's intense, Jesus. But what does Jesus say there about self-control? It's not gonna come easy. Like I've always thought like, okay, self-control is a fruit of the spirit. So I just need to pray for more self-control, which is true. But sometimes when I pray for something, what God gives me is not the thing itself, but instructions on how to find it. And what he says here is get serious. You want self-control? Self-denial. Get serious. Fast. If you're having a problem with self-control. I think one of the things that we miss when it comes to managing self-control or increasing self-control in our lives is the power of fasting. But what does Jesus say? If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your phone causes you to sin, turn it off. If alcohol causes you to sin, pour it out. We have to get serious about these things because if we're not finding it, we have to go back to what Jesus said and this is what he says. It's not a 10-step program, as good as those are. It's, it's Jesus' words and it's so brilliant and it's so beautiful and I absolutely love it. So that's the first thing. If you're not finding Jesus things in yourself, when I fail to be finding Jesus in myself, I need to go back to what Jesus said. Remember, Jesus' words, number one. We're gonna go to number two in a minute, but because it's Wednesday night, we're gonna take a few detours, a little side things. Um, So informal survey. How long was Jesus dead? I'm gonna give you two choices. One, three days or roughly 72 hours, or two, two nights and one day or roughly 40 hours. Who thinks three days, 72 hours? You guys know your Bibles. Two nights and one day, roughly 40 hours. Right, but what's the common misconception? Three days. Jesus was dead for three days. This actually caught me off guard. I kind of knew it, but it hadn't really like clicked until I read this and realized, okay, they buried him on Friday night. It is now Sunday morning early and they go to the tomb. Which by the way is why we worship on Sundays. That's why the church worships on Sundays because Sunday is the day that Jesus rose. You can worship every day. In fact, We should worship every day. But the reason we gather on Sundays is because Jesus rose. The thing that's so interesting to me about this and the thing that I just want to camp on for just a second is we need to be careful about what we think we know that the Bible says and what the Bible actually says. Here's a few statements. God won't give you more than you can handle. True or false? False. Right? Second Corinthians, Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters. We experienced in Asia under great pressure, far beyond our ability. Okay, so if it was beyond Paul's ability, it's beyond mine. God helps those who help themselves. False. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, unable to help ourselves, God died for us. Be in the world, but not of it. Ooh, tricky one. John 15, nine, Jesus blatantly tells us we're not of the world. It's not a choice. It's not an option. You're not of the world. And then he goes on to say, that's why the world hates you. Cheerful verse. 
But I think we need to be careful. I think one of the most important things that we can ask, because there is this barrage of knowledge and information these days. You guys are feeling that? I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, I actually had this entire thing about the iPhone in here that I cut for time. But it's just amazing how it's changing our, our culture. You know, the average, okay, apparently I'm going to talk about it. All right, there we go. You know, the average iPhone user touches their phone over 2,000 times a day. Double for millennials. That's, that's actually a stat. That's not just me dashing on millennials. Um, as Americans, we're viewing over two hours of social media a day and between one to five hours of TV. I've been reading this really interesting book and there's a bunch of studies quoted in it and one of them said this, continuous partial attention is the new norm. Continuous partial attention. What is that doing to our kids? Like, how often am I giving my child partial attention? And how often am I giving them full attention? The book, it was a brilliant book. It went on to... to set forth this topic that I think we are going to, my wife and I have been talking about trying to adopt, which is this, parent your phone. Parent your phone. Here's what we mean. Children are wonderful and life-giving and they're a gift, but they're also draining and exhausting and they constantly want things from you, right? So is a phone. It's draining and exhausting and it constantly wants something from you. What it wants is your attention because you realize that's what's for sale, Right? You're the product, not the consumer. Our attention's for sale. And that phone wants things from us. Now, it's a brilliant tool, and I love it. But most of the time, I'm not finding Jesus on my phone, okay? I'm finding all sorts of other stuff on my phone. A lot of it good. A lot of it wonderful. A lot of it almost biblical, which was the whole reason I brought this up, because we always need to be asking, where in the Bible is that actually? But I'm getting sidetracked. Parent your phone. The concept is this. Give it a bedtime. Don't let it sleep with you, right? And you need a date night or a day off or a day away from your phone before you kill it. Actually, that's with children. The phone kills you. It's the other way around. But I think it's brilliant. I'm actually thinking of ordering an alarm clock. I'm kind of tired of having my phone next to my bed. Alarm clocks still exist. In fact, I could pull my phone out and get one on Amazon and come to my house in about 30 seconds. (laughs) It's a great tool, but that's not where I'm going to find Jesus, is it? Uh -uh. I'm going to find Jesus in what he said. All right. Okay. That was a detour. Let's get it back on track here. (laughs) Luke chapter 24, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village, village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still and looking sad said, then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, 
and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all, and I have that word all circled, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is now toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The road to Emmaus story. I want this sermon someday. I want to sit down at Jesus' feet and be like, Jesus, give me the road to Emmaus sermon. I've been waiting a long time to hear it. I love this story. But there's something about this story that confuses me. So follow me for a second. You've got these two guys. They have been traveling with Jesus. They are disciples of Jesus. They were close enough to Jesus that they were in the upper room when the women came back from the tomb and told them, we saw an angel, the tomb is empty. They were still there when Peter ran and saw that the tomb was empty and came back and told them. And then they left Jerusalem and went to Emmaus. Why did you leave? Like, I don't get that. You're going the wrong way. I think the key is in verse 21. Here's what it says. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. See, they remembered some of the Old Testament prophecies about Messiah. Some of the prophecies about how Messiah would come, about how he would redeem, about how he would save, about how he would triumph. But they forgot some of the prophecies. And so Jesus comes alongside them and lovingly, but strictly says, Oh, foolish ones, did you not remember all that the prophets have spoken? All that the word said. So here's our next thing. When we're headed in the wrong direction, we need to remember all that the word says. The entire word is about Jesus. Remember all the words about Jesus. It's hugely important because they are discouraged. They are defeated they are disillusioned, and it's because they didn't remember all. 
See, they probably remembered Psalm 8. Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. But they forgot Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, I'm sure they remembered Isaiah 61.1. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release from darkness the prisoners. But they forgot Psalm 53.3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Or 53.7, he will be led like a lamb to the slaughter. And the problem is this. They didn't remember all of the prophecies and so they become discouraged and disillusioned because when they see Jesus die, they think all is lost. And it's really important that we remember all of the words of the Bible, all of the Bible that is written for us because we're promised great things with this life in Christ, are we not? That's right, Deuteronomy, Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. That's really good for us to remember. But we got to remember all. John 15, 19, the world will hate you. Because if we don't remember all, we become discouraged and disillusioned and we start going the wrong direction. We start walking away from where we're supposed to be because we think this can't be right. I'm trying to serve Jesus. I'm here on Wednesday night. I'm in my Bible. I'm pursuing him. And the people in my workplace just hate me. They think I'm narrow-minded. Someone called me a bigot. They think I don't understand. They think I'm a fool. Yeah. Does that mean things are going wrong? No, that's what Jesus said would happen. But if we forget that, we become so discouraged. Romans 8, 17. If you are children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs in Christ. Yay, provided we suffer. Boo. We have to remember the whole verse. We can't stop. Provided we suffer, he says. Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Amen. That's a beautiful promise. So is Matthew 5, 11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. It's really important that we remember all that was written about Jesus because otherwise we run into tough times we run into difficult circumstances and we think that we are in error we think we misunderstood we think he was the one I had put my hope in and maybe he's not but it's exactly like he said it would be it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's difficult and it's temporary it's temporary That's the final promise. That's the reason it's all worth it. It's because it's temporary. I think one thing that we really need to press into kids, I've been thinking about this a lot. I've been thinking about this with high school kids heading off to college. You go off to college and you hear lots of kids come back and they've run into professors and they're made to feel like fools for being Christians. That what you believe is unscientific or stupid or insane, or you just must not be a good thinker. And and kids come back and and we can do this. And they think, well, that person's way smarter than me. So they must be right. But Jesus is way smarter than that dude. And here's what he said. First Corinthians 319, the wisdom of this world is folly with God. 
The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. But if you're not prepared for that, if you don't realize that they're blind and deceived, you think they're brilliant and enlightened. And that's why we have to know what our word says. That's why it's so wonderful to come here on a Wednesday night and dive into it. Dive into all, like Exodus, where we'll see Jesus and we'll learn about hard times and good times and redemption and grumbling and complaining and redemption and grumbling and complaining and redemption and grumbling and complaining. And it's, it's a little repetitive at a certain point. Kind of like my life. <laughs> and it's so brilliant. But I think it's really important. The one other thing I want us to see before we leave this passage that I think is just so wonderful is one of the first things risen Jesus does is pursue two people who are headed in the wrong direction. Jesus pursues them. Jesus pursues you and me. And when we're headed in the wrong direction, if you feel like you're headed in the wrong direction tonight, disillusioned, discouraged, Jesus is pursuing you and he will continue to pursue you. And he wants to grab you and tell you truth in his word. And what happens when they realize that? They get up and they run back to Jerusalem. Because part of me was like, well, there must have been something really important in Emmaus. Yeah, until they met Jesus, suddenly it wasn't that important anymore, was it? That's so cool. I love that story. Finally, we have this, the third encounter. Jesus appears to his disciples, verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Here's the final thing we need to remember. Jesus is real. Jesus is real. Now it might seem kind of like a well, duh, But to me, it's so important and it's something I have to continually remind myself of because I can begin to think of Jesus not as a reality, but more as a philosophy or a way of life, a set of beliefs, a moral standard. Not that I don't believe he's real, but it just doesn't click. It's just not real to me. I can think of him more as a spirit and forget that he was a real man, the God man who really came who really lived, who really suffered and endured and taught and understands. Jesus was real. And it's important for me to remember that. It's important for me to remember that because when I realize that he was real, I study not just his words, but I study his life. There's another book I've been reading. Actually, same book. Good book. Um... The Ruthless Elim- book titled The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. Good book. Um, anyways, he, he talks about his pursuit of Jesus as an apprenticeship. Not his words, he got it from some other teacher. But he says, we're really, we're apprentices of Jesus. That's what we are. 
we're supposed to be learning from Jesus. We're supposed to be, what an apprentice does is they follow around the master, right? And they do everything exactly the way the master did, right? If the master, if you're apprenticing a potter, you're gonna get the clay out of the bucket the same way the master is. And you're gonna put the same amount of water on and you're gonna try and shape it the same. And his is gonna be beautiful and yours is gonna be lumpy and you're gonna throw it away and you're gonna try it again. And you're gonna try and do everything exactly the same way the master does. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We are apprentices of Jesus. And as apprentices of Jesus, we're supposed to look not just at what Jesus said, but how Jesus lived. It's so interesting that a lot of the gospels are stories, not just about Jesus's words, but about his life, how he went about his day-to-day affairs, which is not the way I would have written a gospel. To me, I would have written just Jesus's words, I just want the teaching. Just give me the meat. Just give me the meat. I want the teaching. That's the stuff I like. But we get stories of Jesus's life instead. And what Jesus says is, hey, come follow me. Come do life the way I do life, which is a very, very different way of doing life, is it not? I mean, Jesus just did things so differently. And when we understand that he's real, and we pursue those stories in that way to apprentice under Jesus, we see all sorts of new things. Did Jesus ever say that people are more important than plans? Nobody showed it all the time. Jesus was always willing to have his plans disrupted, wasn't he? He's on his way here and we have a woman with an issue of blood. He's walking this direction and a, a lady's son has died. There's a leper who steps in front of his path. There's a man who's screaming because he's concerned with demons. And what does Jesus do? Dude, I'm super busy. Like I, I will get back to you. Send me an email, okay? I'll have my people contact your people. No, he stops and he engages and he lets his life get disrupted. And sometimes the disciples are super frustrated with it, aren't they? Jesus, we got places to go. We got people to see. Jesus is like, there's people right here. They're super important. And we can learn a lot from that. Did Jesus ever say that friends are important? Is there a parable about friendship? No, but Jesus surrounded himself with friends, didn't he? And as our culture gets further and further away from like close-knit friendships, I think that's something we're missing as an apprentice to Jesus, if I'm really trying to do life the way Jesus does life, I need to surround myself with friends. Interesting. Did Jesus ever tell us what is the most important thing that we can do when we're tired or stressed or emotionally spent? Is there a sermon on that? What do you do when you're exhausted? What do you do when you're emotionally spent? What do you do when you just have nothing left in your tank? There's no parable. There's no sermon, but what did Jesus do every single time that happened to him? He went off by himself, spent time with his father, and prayed. Really interesting concept, but um, at the beginning of Luke, Jesus goes out into the desert for 40 days, and he fasts, right? And then Satan comes along and tempts him. And I've heard so many stories or sermons we're basically pointing at Satan being like, do you see how sneaky Satan is? Satan, Satan comes to you when you're at your weakest, when you're at your most vulnerable, when you're hungry and you're tired. But there's another take on that story, and I think it might be right, which is this. Jesus needed 40 days alone, fasting and praying and in direct communion with his father 
to be ready for Satan. I think that might be right. It's really interesting what Jesus does when he's tired and he's stressed. He doesn't reach for a drink. He doesn't reach for a nap. He doesn't take a vacation. He takes some quiet time alone with his father. That's what real Jesus did when he was really tired and really exhausted and really worn out. Because he's real. And I think it's important for us to remember that. Not only was he real then, he's still real. He's in heaven right now preparing a place for us. Someday we get to be in heaven with Jesus. And it looks like we can teleport. Anybody else get that from this story? It's super cool. Like the, most commentators say that this is probably the best look at what we'll get, what our, the best look at what our resurrected bodies will be like, like Jesus. Apparently we can teleport, right? Because Jesus is in one place and he's in another place and he's in another place. That sounds awesome. And we still get to eat because that's great too. But Jesus is there preparing a place for you right now. When we pray, he hears us. Real Jesus, creator of the universe, hears me. I know that, but sometimes I just need to know that and meditate on it. So that's the things. That's what Luke wants us to remember. Remember what Jesus said. Remember everything that was written. Remember that he's real. And then Luke is going to finish with his version of the Great Commission. Here's what he says, verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, this it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Verse 48, this is the Great Commission. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. What is the last thing that Luke, that we read from Luke that Jesus tells his disciples? This is your assignment. I'm leaving, here it is. Be a witness. What is a witness but one who remembers? Right? That's what we want. You call someone up on the witness stand and it's, what do you remember? What did you see? What did you hear? If we have an expert witness, remember what you learned. That's all Jesus wants from us. Sometimes I feel like we need to think that we're deep theologians in order to share our faith. Mm -mm. Just be a witness. Witness what God has done in your life. Read Acts. That's what the apostles do. They just go out and they just tell stories about how Jesus affected their life. They tell about all of their but God moments. You know what I mean? Like a but God moment. That's how this chapter starts. What's the first word in chapter 24? But. It is the most important conjunction in the history of the world. Because in chapter 23, God is dead. Evil won. Satan triumphed. But God does not stay dead. But God will not stay silent. But God comes back and wants to be active and working in our lives. I was talking with my wife about this and she said, most of us, 
could look back and tell the story of our walk with Jesus through all of our but God moments. Do you have them? I have them. I mean, there's times in my life where I was doing exactly what we talked about at the beginning of this. I was looking in the wrong places, but God would not let me continue and drew me back to him. There's a time I was on a wrong career path, but God sent me to this place where the moment I walked in, my boss hated me, which didn't feel like a God moment, but God knew. I had no desire to get married, but God sent this beautiful woman through my check stand line and four months later, we're engaged. I did not want to go to Africa, but God had other plans. In a few weeks, I get to go back with Matt and a few other group. I mean, but God, what are your but God moments? That's what we share. That's what we witness. That's the stories we tell. That's what changes people. That's what God's asked us to do. Remember me, tell about all the ways I changed your life. All the ways you wouldn't be where you are, but for me. Verse 50, and he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Amen? Father, thank you. May we remember you in every waking moment. Remember what you said and seek it out. Remember all the things that is written, the good, the bad, the difficult. Remember that you're real. That you really love us. You really died for us and you're really preparing a place for us. May we be witnesses of those things in our city this week. In Jesus' name, amen.